This is Black Agenda Radio, a weekly hour of African-American political thought and action. Welcome to the radio magazine that brings you news, commentary, and analysis from a black left perspective. I'm Margaret Kimberly, along with my co-host Glenn Ford. Coming up, Corporate Democrats and Republicans have long had a near monopoly on electoral politics. But the Black is Back Coalition wants to put Black liberation in the U.S. electoral mix. And the term fascism looks quite different from a Black historical perspective. Ajamu Baraka takes an in-depth look at the subject. But first, we'll hear from Samaria Rice, mother of Tamir Rice, the 12-year-old Black youth who was shot to death by Cleveland police in 2014. She's joined with Lisa Simpson, mother of Richard Risher, the 18-year-old shot dead by Los Angeles police in 2016, to demand accountability from the small group of people that control millions of dollars in Black Lives Matter donations. The mothers are demanding a meeting with Patrice Cullors, Sean King, and Tamika D. Mallory, to address a whole range of proposals on the future of the Black liberation movement. Ms. Rice is advised by activist and academic Dr. Joy James and Fred Hampton Jr., son of the assassinated Chicago Black Panther leader. Rice says it's time that the Black Lives Matter hashtag folks answer to the Black community. Almost like the middle of 2015, I believe, is when I met some folks from Black Lives Matter that had came in to Cleveland to help my cousin do some organizing. My cousin's name is Latanya Goldsby. And right now, Latanya Goldsby, her and a few people formed uh, Black Lives Matter Cleveland after Tamir's murder. But as my cousin was organizing and organizing in a city, like I said, people got in contact with her and she introduced me to Black Lives Matter which was a few people. So basically, you know, I was learning them, trying to understand them as they came in and wanted to respect my wishes and kept me updated. Black Lives Matter, along with other organizations in Cleveland, Ohio, was instrumented in getting McGinty out of office, which was the former prosecutor that messed up Tamir's case. So they were successful of getting him out of office, along with other organizers in my community. I didn't really think that I had a beef with them, and I don't still think that I have a beef with them at all. What was a trigger for me is to see Tamika D. Mallory on the Grammys. And I, I couldn't understand why she was on the Grammys with no family members on stage with her, not even Tamika Palmer's mom on stage with her. So it just was a trigger for me, and I went to say clout chasing, Black Lives Matter, Tamika Mallory. I said something. But going back a little bit, a mother named Lisa Simpson had contacted me, and I met Lisa probably in 2018. And I was kind of explaining to her, like, honey, you're not going to get no help. And these Black Lives Matter folks, they're not going to help you, period. You know what I'm saying? They're not going to help you how you want them to help you. Let me say that. And she didn't really quite understand what I was saying at the time, but she had to kind of find out on her own down the line as she continued to be in these circles. And I wasn't in these circles. I left the circles for a reason, other reasons as well. But 
2018, like the middle of 2018, almost the end, like the middle of the end, Melina Abdullah and Lisa Simpson had got into it about Melina kicking the mother out the encampment and telling her if she want to fight her fight, she got to go down the street. So I called Melina Abdullah and I kind of checked her and said, well, why would you tell this mother? And I never had met Melina Abdullah at that time. I don't, let me see. Oh, yes, I had met her one time, one time, but it was like a, a meet and greet and hi. We didn't have no relationship. It was like an introduction, and I heard about you, and I support you, Miss Rice. That was it, because I did a segment out on the P. Diddy show in 2018. I had a segment out there. So and that's when I had a chance to meet Melina Abdullah. Like I said, it wasn't really nothing. So, so I felt that I could give Melina a call when Lisa had told me that she had kicked her out their cabin. Now, this was the end of 2018. And I don't consider this no beef or no problem. I, I think it's a very misunderstanding on their part, not mine. But going forward, like I said, I had called uh, Melina to ask her, why you tell this mother she go down the street, kick her out the encampment? So I ended up calling Patrice Cutters about it. And I said, well, this is what's going on. You know, this mother has a strong voice and she wants to be able to, you know, say her own son's name. <laughs> Basically, they didn't want her to say her own son's name. They wanted to say her son's name because her son is Richard Richard. And he got murdered by LAPD, and he was 18 years old, and he took 35 shots to the chest, and it was a big case in L.A. So they told the mother that they could, the mother couldn't say her own son's name and to go down the street with it, and Melina wanted to uplift her son's name. You know what I'm saying? So I was telling Patrice that this mom has a strong voice, and, you know, I, I wanted you to handle this. You know, this, you know you're out in L.A., I'm coming out to L.A. all the time, and, and Lisa is a good friend of mine. I need you to make handle this and make this right. So she said she would look into it or whatnot or whatever, and then again, Melina and Lisa got into it again. I think I called Melina again when Lisa told me that they did a video asking for $5,000 in Brother Richie's name, which is Lisa's son, and I sent all of the information. I sent the video to Patrice. I sent her Lisa's contract. I said, you should reach out to this mother, Patrice. And me and Patrice, we had a relationship, but we didn't. You know, it was like I could call her and say, hey, how you doing? How's the baby? Y'all good? You know, we just talk like that. That's it. It wasn't like she was directly supporting me or anything like that, you know, because for one, I was already working with some of their people anyway. So if it was direct support coming through their people to support me, maybe that's what it was, but it was nothing direct. So once I sent her all the information in regards to Lisa and everything, I said, make this right. You know, I said, Patrice, make this make this make sense, make this right. And I hadn't heard from her about that. So I sent her a letter on behalf of the Tamir Rice Foundation and letting her know that I was a 501c3 and that, you know, I was an organization and could she donate to my organization? I haven't heard from Patrice since then. And that was two years ago. Yes. A couple of months ago, Patrice Cullors announced that Black Lives Matter Global, the organization she heads, had collected $90 million. How'd you feel when you heard that number? Well, of course, I was like, well, where the hell they get $90 million from? That was interesting. I mean, it didn't surprise me because I knew that they were raising a lot of money anyway, but, you know, I didn't know, like, that much money. So it didn't surprise me. 
You know, especially with George Floyd and Breonna Taylor, I really thought all of that money came from that, you know, which I really don't know. You know what I'm saying? I don't know, because in some of the descriptions with Black Lives Matter has GoFundMe, it got George Floyd and Breonna Taylor. It says George Floyd and the families. So I don't really know how that all that money got raised. I don't know if they had all that money from back from years and combined it, all of it. Who knows? Nobody will never know the truth. I don't know. It didn't make me feel no type of way. I'm like, oh, they got $90 million. Well, what the hell are they getting ready to do with that? And how did they get it? And that's, I want to know how did they get it. Only thing I know them to do is uplift the loved one's names and do little things here and there and there. So I'm just thinking, I'm just putting all this together. Like, well, I'll be there. These people got $90 million. And all they did was uplift people's names. They took care of no communities, and they took care of no families. Well, you've put together a comprehensive list of some of the things they can do with their money. And it begins with accountability to families like yours, who've suffered the ultimate injustice at the hands of police. But it broadens to include, at least at the end of your list of requests, the convening of a meeting that would take into account all of the grassroots forces Uh in Black communities, I assume, around the country. That Uh is the first national kind of grassroots meeting to assess and possibly direct the scope of this Black movement? Mm-hmm. Well, they need to show accountability and transparency, which they have not done. I had talked to um, Opal Chimetti about how I didn't like how uh, Black Lives Matter uh, was going. It wasn't no structure. Things wasn't stable. Um, they wasn't getting a lot of support. And families are still struggling and homeless out here. And I had told Opal that. She is one of the co-founders. She does not make a lot of decisions. Patrice Colors is the head. So I felt that I could reach out to her when I did to have those conversations. Don't have too much of a relationship with Elisa Garza. She has been very quiet and muted in this situation. Again, Patrice Colors is the voice, and I developed a closer relationship with Opal Tometi. So as I developed this relationship with Opal Tometi, you know, I just shared some of my concerns that I had for the organization and wanted to have understanding of where we supposed to be going as black people. <laughs> Number one, she wasn't able to give me any of that. So I just had to sit back and think and think and think and think like, wow. What is really going on here? My thing is, I've been thrown in this situation and given a platform because of my son's death. And I have developed a way to give back to the community through my son by getting a building in the community, investing in the community as I invested in my children. By purchasing a building, creating programs, serving the community as I supposed to be. You know what I'm saying? Because I didn't have to. You know, I didn't have to. And still being on the front lines and fighting for justice. It makes it hard when you have these folks that's supposed to be helping us and they not helping us and they put in our communities to put us to sleep. You know, and I keep seeing death after death after death and and police killing after killing after killing. And what we see when we wake up is Black Lives Matter there. So 
it it just started really bothering me really, really bad. Like, you know what? This has got to stop. This has got to stop. Me and my sister have been talking about it. This has got to stop. And then as we have been talking about it, we see what Mike Brown did. I think Mike Brown did what he did because they had mentioned they had $90 million. And after Mike Brown did what he did, I said, you know what? I should put me a letter out. But I was going to put a letter out like Mike Brown, but I didn't do it. But what happened was I seen Tamika Mallory on the Grammys, and it was a trigger, and I started typing on Facebook. So I never even got the chance to put my letter out because my my trigger, my emotions took the best of me, and I went, I got to typing on Facebook. You see what I'm saying? Not even knowing what was going to happen, so I just expressed myself, and it went viral. Some of us are most impressed by your demand or request that a charitable trust and community fund be set up to support political prisoners. And we're impressed not only because so few organizations remember our political prisoners going back two generations and still in jail, but because the movement keeps on creating political prisoners. And yet there's been no support from that $90 million for the people who have gone to jail, and some of them are still in jail, and lots have been charged with felonies under the Black Lives Matter banner. Yeah, and that's sad. And that's what, like I said, when I had talked to Opal about being structured, you know, taking care of the grassroots organizations, the families, she didn't really have a lot to say about it. Again, I never had a chance to talk to Patrice Cullors about it in depth. Like, I never brought this to her attention on how I was feeling because I just didn't feel that she would give me a genuine response. So I never brought it up to her. I brought it up to Opal because we had a relationship. And I knew Opal would understand me either way it go. You know, I wanted Opal to give me the truth or whatever she can share with me at the time. But she really couldn't share much because she didn't know a lot either at the time. She's just really going with the flow. And I get it. I understand. But we definitely want to take care of our political prisoners and our community and our families. So, that you know, it was just the way that me and Lisa, you know, wanted to make sure that the families and the communities is, is taken care of. Absolutely. When do you anticipate this meeting happening with Patrice Cullors and Sean King and Tamika Mallory, as well as Ms. So, Abdullah? So I begin emails back and forth from Patrice Cullors and Tamika Mallory. I'm hoping that it's going to be happening soon. I don't really know. You know, some things, I guess they're strategizing, you know, how to get back with us. We're strategizing how to respond. So we're, I'm hoping to have it in the next couple of weeks because, you know, this is a conversation that needs to be had. And I didn't think it was going to go this far, but evidently it's a lot of people out there that's feeling the same way. And, if I'm the person, me and Lisa, to ask those hard questions, I don't mind. Because I, I know all three of them women. I never met Tamika D. Mallory and Sean King. You raised $60,000 and sent me a check, and you ain't even know me in Tamir Wright's name. There you go. Yes, you did. Yes, you did. So where's the rest of my money, Sean? So it's conversation been had in private too long. You know what I'm saying? So now it's time to put it out there. However they put it out there, I don't care how it get put out there, but it needs to be put out there because you're not going to continue to have conversations with me in private. That's what you're not going to do. 
What you're talking about having a big conversation, a conversation involving grassroots activists from all around the country under the title yeah, of yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Under, under the title of People's Forum 2022 and 2023. Yes, absolutely. So we have Dr. Joy James on and we have Fred Hampton that's going to facilitate. I don't have a problem with it because uh, Fred C. Hampton has supported me um, um, since, since I was introduced to him in 2018, early 2018. Um, and he has been supporting me. So I, I don't really, um, have no issues with talking to these people and, and having the public a part of the conversation. So I don't, I don't have no problem with it. I would prefer it that way because the one thing you're not going to keep doing is coming for me because you know, I'm vulnerable and you believe that you could take advantage of me because I don't know the right terminology and that's shame on them. So I'm ready for whatever they got at this point. They have to be able to explain to all of us what is their political education and what does black liberation look to you all? Because they have not showed none of us what black liberation looks like supporting communities or families. They are not our representation of justice, black liberation, working for the people. The question that I might ask, why are you here? Who sent you? And did you have a resume when you signed up for the position? So it's a few questions there. Do you think it's okay to get book deals and movie deals and platforms off the death of loved ones? Do you think that's okay? I just want them to take care of the families and the community. And I want them to be gone. I mean, at this point, the trust is broken. I'm here to listen. I want to know what their meaning of black liberation or what is their political education. Because I'm still learning myself. They have false represented the movement. And that is a reason why maybe... We can't get no justice because we we out here sucking and jiving, dancing, doing this, doing that. How can they take us seriously? Who going to take us seriously when y'all out here doing the things that y'all do? That's what I'm saying. I don't want nothing to gain. I just want our people to live, and I want us to be free. That's all I want. That was Samaria Rice, mother of Tamir Rice, speaking from Cleveland. On April 10th and 11th, the Black is Back Coalition for Social Justice, Peace, and Reparations will hold its yearly electoral campaign school, digitally, of course. Black is Back Chairman Omali Yeshitela tells us how the electoral school became a yearly feature of the coalition's schedule. I think it came about because uh, as a consequence of the development of our struggle, uh, subsequent to the brutal defeat of the Black Revolution of the 60s, leading to assassinations of Malcolm X and Martin Luther King and, and the destruction of the Black Panther Party and very much of the, uh, uh, of the anti-colonial revolutionary front of our movement. And that meant that it pushed uh, so many of our revolutionaries out of political life. And it left that uh, sector of political life that was open to us primarily functioning within the electoral process that now in 1965, we're told that African people can utilize uh, to make advances, but our organizations and our programs and our cadre had been wiped out, destroyed, generally speaking, in this country. So now uh, this has been a political space that has been primarily dominated from our community 
by a sector of the population that was in bed with colonialism that worked really hard to, to obscure the colonial character of our oppression or the colonial nature of our oppression. And increasingly rebuilding, this movement has been in a process of rebuilding. We played an important role in the African People's Socialist Party to complete the Black Revolution of the 60s as opposed to retreating to just a, a stance of trying to find some kind of freedom solely locked into the assumption that there was going to be an ongoing continuation of the system. And so we said, let's open up this space. Let's take this political space uh, that's there. Let's use every bit of political space, every form of struggle. Let's try to win a recognition to the utilization of the, uh, the electoral process as a means by which we can take Malcolm's program we can take the Panthers program, we can take anti-colonial politics back into the electoral process, use this platform uh, to reach greater numbers of people uh, and help to uh, bring them into political life for self-determination. And so let's do this. Let's destroy this monopoly on the electoral process that's enjoyed uh, by uh, that sector of the population that's not interested in ending colonialism. Let's uh, make it possible for masses of people uh, to come into this process by destroying this myth of the electoral process as being one, the only way you can struggle, and destroy the mystery of the electoral process so that people won't hold it up to, as something that ordinary uh, working class African people and activists and young people cannot participate in uh, with any kind of skill and capacity. And that, that's what helped us to reach this. And along with the fact that you've got this coalition which now has 18 different organizations constituting the leadership of this body uh, able to uh, uh, unite more or less around uh, these questions of self-determination, willing to fight uh, for this. Uh, most of these organizations having their own base, their own activity, rooted in actual struggle on the ground, some of it being electoral politics. Let's go ahead and, and take this out to this greater audience, this greater capacity uh, than we've had since our revolution was crushed and, and, and great leaders and organizations were destroyed. But none of this signals in any way an endorsement of the duopoly, corporate duopoly, electoral <laughs> system. Although you have had the participation of certain Democrats every year at this electoral school, uh, most notably Charles Byron, the Brooklyn, New York, former Black Panther, who's now a state assemblyman. And he considers himself to be an anti-Democrat Democrat. I think that's right. And I think what we've seen is that the liberal sector of the ruling class in this country or the ruling class in this country has had a monopoly on this participation, that most of us have been pushed out of this arena. Uh, and the people, our people, uh, for the most part, have been pushed out of this arena because although they claim over and over again they want black people to vote, 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 they don't. That's why you don't have anything on the platform of the Democratic Party that would invite people uh, to participate in the election. The only time you see that happening is now, uh, since we've succeeded in pushing things like reparations to uh, the forefront, and more and more people are grappling with that and other kinds of critical issues around police violence and things, now you see these politicians in the Democratic Party, et cetera, trying to at least pay uh, some kind of homage uh, to uh, these questions as a way to capture and control and dominate them. 
So no, we're not talking about that. We're saying that they had a monopoly. They had a lock on the electoral process. So that even some progressive people have joined the Democratic Party, at least symbolically, symbolically to have access to the electoral process. We, this Charles Barron is a splendid example of that uh, out of New York. Jesse Todd in St. Louis is a splendid example of that. But we've seen the, the young Democrats in St. Louis join and support and endorse our candidate in St. Louis that's fighting for community control of the police, that's fighting uh, for reparations to the Af- African community. We saw that even uh, in St. Petersburg, Florida, when uh, we ran candidates on the 19-point platform that has come out of the Black is Black Coalition, we saw uh, the, a split happen inside the Democratic Party uh, with a sect of them joining our candidate that was fighting for reparations, that was fighting against pushing our community out. Our involvement uh, even uh, opens the door for anti-democratic Democrats inside the Democratic Party, people who uh, call themselves progressive inside the Democratic Party, have an alternative to the traditional Democratic Party and the ruling uh, sector that controls that organization. So no, we've opened up an incredibly important door so that sometimes people who carry that load on their backs of being identified as members of the Democratic Party and now have the ability to fight uh, for a revolutionary national democratic program that is opposed to what the Democratic Party and the whole uh, colonial capitalist system stands for. And of course, not all electoral activity has to do with putting candidates in office. There are a number of proposals for community control of the police, which the coalition, of course, supports, that involve public referendums on that question. And of course, reparations can involve public referendums as well. That's true. And I think another thing that... uh... It's really helpful that uh, one of the members of the Coalition Steering Committee, uh, Reverend Ed Pinkney, has uh, contributed uh, to this, is adding to the arsenal of electoral uh, campaign work uh, the question of recall, uh, to be able to punish, to be able and prepare to punish uh, those who are elected uh, in elected office and who work against our interests. And with the objective, of course, being to have, have these forces pay a consequence. Uh, whether they are black and and represent the worst uh, represent the Democratic Party, whether they are white, whether they're Republican, uh, whether they even uh, claim to be uh, unaffiliated with either of the parties, uh, if they work against us, they need to know that we have the ability uh, to make them pay a consequence. And so we're training people. We are helping people to be educated about the use of the recall process, and that's very powerful also. So that's part part of it. You got Cam Howard who out of Chicago uh, and who is a part of Encobra, who's been doing uh, reparations work for a long time. And one of the things that's come uh, from uh, the work that they've done in Chicago is even having a slavery disclosure ordinance passed uh, by Chicago. It doesn't do anything in terms of uh, providing reparations, but it identifies corporations and things as a matter of law uh, on on the books there in Chicago. And he's uh, bringing information about how to do that what it looks like and how to do that in in states and cities all around this country, one, and two, to add to that, to enhance it uh, by by making a reparations a a part of the outcome of these ordinances uh, that identify uh, these corporations that have been involved historically in the trade in African bodies. So this is a part of what it does. It's a 
really important thing that I'm sure the rulers of this country never expected to see African people being able uh, to fight against the colonial domination of our people by demanding reparations, using this instrument of uh, electoral politics, which was designed primarily uh, to allow for a nonviolent contest between contending sectors of the ruling class uh, for control uh, of the state apparatus. Never expected uh, victims of the state apparatus to be able to utilize this process uh, as we are using it now, uh, refusing to uh, remove ourselves from the possibility of any form of struggle that's possible for us to gain uh, our freedom, our liberation, and even to make uh, reforms that can contribute to the total elimination of colonial domination of African people. That's what the coalition is doing. That's what the electoral school that we're involved in is doing. That's what we can put uh, freedom of the political prisoners, of our political prisoners who are being tortured and murdered, who've been held in these hell holes uh, for, uh, for half a century or more. We can put that on the ballot. We can make that a part of what everyone who's running for office would have to put on their platform, and we can punish them if they refuse to speak to that question. And this is an important point in history. Because right now, uh, despite the fact of the success of the United States government in crushing our revolutionary movement in the past, despite the fact that they have tried to confuse the people and succeeded for a while in, in bringing a kind of uh, a delirium to our masses uh, with the advent of Obama, uh, and now uh, they're trying to do a similar thing with Kamala Harris. Despite all of that, I think more and more African people uh, coming to a conclusion. They're watching this George Floyd trial. They saw his murder. They see African people testify on the stand and talk about how helpless they felt and how they wish they could have done something, how guilty they felt. And because this was something that went beyond just the community where violence happens and people might uprise and be upset in that neighborhood, it is something that has been collectivized in terms of the consciousness and the experience of African people throughout this country and peoples around the world. That means that we see a greater likelihood uh, that the people who will get rid of that guilt, will get rid of the shame uh, and the humiliation that went with the murder of George Floyd and increasingly uh, join us uh, in achieving revolutionary conclusions and even utilizing the electoral process as one means by which they can fight back, one means by which they can do something, one means by which they can end the sense of powerless that we feel as a regular base as colonized people inside the United States. As you explained, uh, candidates that want an endorsement from the Black is Back Coalition must endorse the national Black political agenda for self-determination. But tell us about how this Black agenda for self-determination came about. I think that's a very good question because the coalition utilized a, a very uh, open uh, process uh, for about a year. And we traveled throughout the United States and we held uh, state conventions that would allow uh, African people to participate and helping to define and unite uh, with this national black political agenda for self-determination. We did that in about 11 different states. And then we also had uh, a, a convention uh, that was held, a preliminary uh, convention that was held in Philadelphia, a national convention. And then uh, uh, the major ultimate convention that happened in Washington, D.C. that was attended by a lot of people. And people voted on this. This is ours. This is the process that went on a very transparent way all over the United States for almost a year. 
And uh, so this is uh, our national black political agenda for self-determination. It was extraordinarily important because what it did uh, for the first time in a very long time, it, it gave uh, us a definition of what self-determination looks like in a very concrete uh, way uh, that can be held politically accountable uh, by everybody. And this was something that was uh, missing uh, in the struggle of our people as it was reemerging subsequent to this murderous defeat that was imposed on us. Now we have some clarity that unifies all of us. This is what we stand for. This is what we demand. This is what we fight for. And even though we've got 18 different organizations and growing participating in this, and even though each of the organizations have has its own work that it does and its own platform that's specific to what it does, all of us are held accountable to the 19-point uh, National Black Political Agenda for Self-Determination. That gives strategic direction uh, to the struggle of our people, despite the fact that we may use various tactics uh, uh, in order to achieve it in, in, in various locations. And of course, if you or your organization can endorse this national black political agenda for self-determination, well, you must not be part of the Democratic Party, much less the Republicans. <laughs> That's right. And, and certainly what it does mean for sure, and when we say you must not be a part of the Democratic Party, we mean you must not be a big D Democrat, even if you may wear that appellation uh, for some kind of political purposes. The fact is that you have now united in a concrete political way uh, with the African people and the struggle against colonialism. And that is the thing that informs our practice, not some uh, loyalty uh, to the system uh, that is responsible for our oppression that is represented by both the Democratic and the Republican Party. So you become uh, independent, you become free, you become a part of the effort uh, by African people to take our freedom in our own hands. And this is something that we've been fighting for uh, for a very long time, which is one of the things that makes this coalition uh, one of the most important things that we've seen emerge in our struggle uh, since that whole revolutionary movement of the 1960s. It used to be that only radicals like Black Panthers and such used to talk about fascism in the United States. But in the last couple of years, Democrats, corporate Democrats, are bandying about the word fascism, like they understand the meaning of the term. <laughs> but the Black is Back Coalition has a very different view of the nature of fascism than, say, Nancy Pelosi does. We have an entirely different view. And what we recognize is that under colonial domination, I mean, fascism uh, is one thing. Uh, you can have a democratic uh, colonial state that dominates and controls the people, and you can have a fascist colonial state that dominates and controls the people. That the life and condition of African people under colonialism uh, have been consistently oppressive, ex ex uh, consistently violent, consistently without any democratic rights and very little democratic state. And But what happens is when the depth and the contradictions of this whole uh, capitalist social system it achieves a certain kind of crisis, then what we see uh, is that these features of colonial capitalism that we live with every day begin to intrude uh, on the lives of the normal uh, colonizer population, and especially among liberals and especially among those who uh, oppose to see this, this 
creep of the colonial capitalist system, how it functions with us uh, entering into the uh, life and conditions of the colonizer, then the, the fascist question becomes something that is extremely important. But what has been happening? We've been listening and talking to members of the coalition. And we see that every place around this country where struggle is happening, we see more and more liberals and so-called leftists talking about fighting against fascism, but they have this discussion in a way uh, that liquidates the fact that African people live under colonial domination all the time. And this thing that they're referring to as fascism is simply an example of how uh, the nature of capital, colonial capitalism, again, is seeping into the lives and experiences uh, of the settler of the colonizers themselves. And so, yeah, we mean something different about that. When they talk about fighting against fascism, they mean join on the side of that sector of the ruling class that's trying to protect the sanctity of what we call democratic colonialism. They don't mean uh, anything about what's happening to us. Nobody, I haven't heard a single leftist, a single Pelosi or anybody call what happened to George Floyd an act of fascism. I haven't heard any of them who talk about talk about the murder and brutality that African people experience on a daily basis, fascism. I heard, haven't heard one of them talk about the life uh, experiences of the people who live in these, uh, under this, in, in these concentration camps that they uh, call uh, Indian reservations, talk about fascism as it relates to them. The only time we hear the discussion of fascism is when what happens to the so-called Indians or the indigenous people, what happens uh, to some extent to what happens to uh, African people and the so-called and the Mexican people and all those other people, when those features of colonial capitalism begin to intrude upon the sanctity of the colonial population and society, then we hear the words fascism. And when they mean fight fascism, generally speaking, what they mean uh, is the fight to preserve the status quo. And the status quo is one that where we have these concentration camps called Indian reservations, massive imprisonment of Africans and Mexicans, indigenous people, uh, and the a regular gunning down of African people throughout this country that's never had them force them to talk about fascism when it comes to us. This fascism is a concept that they've had to develop in order to explain uh, what is the natural function of colonial capitalism when it comes to us and other people who live under colonial domination all the time. And you'll be having more conversations about the nature of Black oppression and the oppression of folks all over the imperial-ruled world at this electoral campaign school. That's on April 10th and 11th. How do people uh, make sure that they are in attendance? What they must do uh, is go to blackisbackcoalition.org. Blackisbackcoalition.org, and you should register right away uh, because it's going to be an extraordinarily important kind of school. And you're right, Comrade Glenn, one of the things that we're doing is not simply teaching people techniques and how to win an election, but we are helping, having, we're trying to assist people in understanding how to interpret the world and what's happening globally and how that relates to what's happening uh, to our people and to people inside uh, this country as well. So it, the opportunity is there not only, again, to learn technically how to do these things, but the first part of the school is designed to help people uh, come to terms with uh, what is happening in the world and how to interpret that uh, separate and independent of what the rulers of this country through their various forms of media uh, would have us understand. That was Omali Yeshitela, chairman of the Black is Back Coalition. 
The Black Alliance for Peace is one of the member organizations of the Black is Back Coalition. Alliance National Organizer Ajamu Baraka recently addressed the subject of fascism. We think Baraka's remarks are a useful addition to Omali Yeshitela's position on fascism. Africans can think for ourselves. Euro-American leftists and liberals tell us that certain historical developments suggest that the U.S. is moving towards forms of governance and society that they define as fascistic. Born out of the crisis of capitalism as manifested in the post-First Imperialist War or so-called World War I in Europe, fascism, a term systematized and given life by Benito Mussolini that reflected his definition of a particular economic, political, and social relationships that reflected the optimal governance program for his movement in Italy in the 1920s. Is replication and further development as the descriptive term for a terroristic, anti-democratic, militaristic, white supremacist and imperialist social system occurred across Europe with its more infamous example being the German uh, Nazi party fronted by Adolf Hitler. But I start there not to delve into the historical intricacies of this term as it was systematized in Europe, but to in fact decenter it, to reject the assumption that fascism was something new, something unique to Europe in the early 20th century, that it's seemingly reemergence in Europe and the United States represents a distinctive new development. I argue, and it's been already been said already this morning, that, uh, that by shifting the standpoint away from Europe, that is to decenter Europe, to engage in a process of epistemological decolonization, we find that the fascism that emerged in Europe did not break from the totalitarian logic and practice of European colonialism. What was different in the 20s and 30s was that the practices of colonialism was as uh, African revolutionaries like George Padmore, uh, W.B. Du Bois, and most famously, Amir Cesar, declared that uh, what happened in Europe was that uh, colonial practices that were applied in the colonies uh, were now being applied or were applied in Europe. That was the case then and is the case during this contemporary period. So you see, understanding this is critically important because Eurocentric leftists who have aligned themselves with right-wing neoliberal capitalist uh, Democrats as part of a confused strategy to so-called counter the right have instead lent the little credibility that they have to inadvertently propping up the legitimacy of the U.S. settler state. And they entered into a, by entering into a intra-bourgeois struggle between sectors of the capitalist class as partisans, they don't understand that uh, or recognize that all sectors of the bourgeoisie are united in one thing, the perpetuation of the bourgeois order, which means that their interests are in fundamental contradictions to ours. So our task, my friends, our task is to engage Africans so they and we are not confused 
and not used as props in the struggle that has nothing to do with our interests as colonized workers and members of nationally oppressed nation. Something that should be quite obvious, even in the short term, that uh, Master Biden has been in office, uh, where it is quite clear that he continues to be committed uh, to strengthening uh, the U.S.-EU-NATO axis of domination. You see, for us, we say that the lived experience of the colonized suggests that the difference, when you look at Master Biden and look at U.S. foreign policies, you look at the machinations of European powers, that there is no difference between a white supremacist liberal imperialist order and something European activists label as fascism. So in my brief presentation, and it has to be brief, I'm gonna touch on three essential questions and then share some examples of contemporary fascism. And we can't delve into this really deeply because of our time constraints. Uh, there's a sort of an inside joke on this piece, but let me just share what those questions are. One, can liberal democracy and fascism as forms of governance exist simultaneously in, same, in the same social formation? And secondly, why does contradictions of the colonial capitalist system generate a turn to forms of fascism in Northern capitalist nations, but anti-capitalism and anti-capitalist radicalization and revolution in the global South? And finally, what is the relationship of neoliberalism to fascism? Are they representative of two distinct structures or expressions of same underlying class rule? And does it make a difference for Africans and colonized people and nations across the planet? Now, let me touch on these questions. Fascism, it can't exist in the same social structure. Well, Samira Men argue that uh, democracy and fascism are forms of of governance for bourgeois rule. Liberal democracy provides the best form for providing legitimacy to bourgeois rule, so it will be embraced for as long as possible, especially since it reflects the unbridled power of capital, that is the capitalist dictatorship. It can exist in one formation, and we say yes because you have to look at this in its proper terms. When you look at the European colonial project, when you understand that in all of the European colonial empires, they were able to eventually provide forms of democratic participation to workers and other classes at the center while simultaneously imposing fascism as a governance system and generator of economic surplus in the periphery. They could be contained in one social structure. In the US, for example, Forms of democracy were extended to the non-bourgeois classes over time, including the white working class, while also maintaining a brutal racial apartheid system for the super exploitation of black labor in the South and even in the industrializing centers of the North in the 20th century. So yes, they can be contained in one uh, social structure when you understand you're looking at the colonial relationships. Second, why does uh, the contradictions of the colonial capitalist system generate a turn to forms of fascism in the northern nations, but anti-capitalist uh, radicalization and revolution in the global south. Well, we know that there is a turn toward uh, populism in the global south that results in some right-wing governments coming to power. 
But you know, when we talk about uh, fascism in the North, the common sense explanation uh, for the rise of fascism in the West uh, is that it's, it's, a re- it's a response to the, the very real ravages of neoliberalism unleashed in the North, that you look at the turn toward uh, neoliberalism, uh, the, what we call the uh, denationalization of the production processes, uh, what is properly known or, or properly known as, as globalization, produce sharpening contradictions uh, between capital and labor uh, in the North. And we don't have to explain how all that sort of unfolded. But the, 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 the issue is this, you know, with the ways in which this neoliberalism has expressed itself with uh, temp agencies and part-time low-wage work, gig work, uh, the disappearance of benefits, uh, especially healthcare benefits, intensified uh, exploitation of the working class. Why is it that instead of the working class uh, moving toward radicalism, it moves toward fascism? And we say that is one particular element, white supremacy. The notion that, that white folks have a God-given right to privilege, to material superiority, or that they can justify the fact that they make up 10% of the world's population, but yet still consume almost 40% of the world's resources, that make America great and liberal U.S. exceptionalism are two sides of the same white supremacist coin, that they can embrace notions of the doctrine of discovery, a manifest destiny, the white man's burden, uh, humanitarian interventionism, uh, and the responsibility to protect. These are all part of the ideological superstructure that keeps the white working class tethered to its bourgeoisie. It is white supremacy that explains why you have to turn to fascism as opposed to radicalism in Northern countries. And what is the relationship between neoliberalism to fascism? Are they representatives of two distinct structures or expressions of same underlying class rule? And does it make a difference for Africans and colonized people across the planet? We say no. We say that fascism is the the terroristic coordination of society resulting from the convergence of capitalist finance and corporate power with the state. Does this not capture exactly neoliberalism and the neoliberal state? You cannot separate the two unless you abstract uh, fascism, like many liberals do, from its class foundation. Okay? If you reduce it to just behaviorisms, your understanding of fascism based on the fact that you've seen too many bad uh, Hitler movies, we don't have the luxury of that kind of uh, confusion. We say that, that neoliberalism is a, is a form of capital, uh, a form of capitalist rule. Uh, it is a rightist ideology and a rightist state structure. Okay? Therefore, this notion that one can fight uh, the far right or fight so-called fascism with embracing neoliberal fascism is absurd, an ideological mystification and that we've got to reject and be clear on. Neoliberalism emerged out of the counter-revolutionary period of the 1970s, that it was part of the counterinsurgency and counter-revolutionary response from the upsurges of the 1960s and into the 1970s. It's no accident that it was first forcibly imposed in Chile in 1973. Domestically, it was, in fact, the rebellion of capital against the dominance of Keynesianism, 
uh, they wanted to eliminate the, uh, the welfare state and to impose discipline on the working class uh, in the US. Uh, with the emergence of Ronald Reagan in the 1980s, then we had the consolidation of this political movement, okay? And the consolidation of what we came to understand is, is global neoliberal capitalist globalization. Today, we talk about fascism. Let's talk about some contemporary manifestations, some contemporary expressions of fascism. Well, when you have support for a right-wing coup in Honduras, when the uh, National Defense Authorization Act gives legal authority to incarcerate anyone considered a threat to national security without trial or habeas corpus, when you have the killing of US citizens without any kind of due process, arbitrary invasions of, of nations directly and indirectly through proxies, the failure to protect citizens and residents being murdered by police forces, the use of, of the Espionage Act to imprison whistleblowers, the authorization of massive surveillance of the public, expansion of drone warfare, including the use of double taps when they hit you with a drone, first responders come out and they hit you again. The support for right-wing coups in Ukraine, Egypt, the attack and destruction of Libya, the 2,400% expansion of the 1033 program, the 1,900% expansion of AFRICOM, increasing the bounty, uh, bounty on Asada Shakur. All of these are examples of fascism under your first black president. So we've got to be clear about what it is we're up against and where we need to go, the way forward. My friends, it's been laid out, we are laid out again here. And we're not talking about a movement toward complete and total transformation, revolutionary transformation, the defeat of this colonial capitalist state, that we are BSing uh, the people and we are undermining our historic mission. We've got to build effective organizations based on our best understanding of the social structure that we are part of uh, and the social structure that we are uh, impacted by. So as I move toward closure now, what are the kinds of organizations we have to build to address this challenge? That are, that's what a central question that we have. We must have, I argue, clear, unambiguous socialist policies. We've got to understand our connection to the world revolution, that we are African people, that we are at war, and then we have to build structures that allow us to ensure that this one-sided war that we are involved in now uh, is reversed uh, and we make this a contest uh, that will ensure that we will in fact uh, be uh, victorious at some point. So my friends, let us contemplate these questions that have been raised and will be raised with the rest of these presentations. Let us rededicate ourselves to the struggle and let us remind ourselves that we are part of global humanity and that we are in the majority and that in fact, when we organize ourselves and clear about our historic mission, we in fact will win. You've been listening to the Black Agenda Report on the Progressive Radio Network. Information for liberation.